Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 182, Prepare a Place for You. And on the podcast this week, we are going to continue our little mini series about heaven. And I want to give a shout out to two of Unbinding the Bible listeners, both to Andy and to Nate for their Facebook interaction and email interaction. Um, They have set up in large part this episode and have given me some new things to think about as I've prepared this episode. In fact, it was Andy's comments on Facebook that really drove home the importance of why I'm doing this episode um, at all. And I hadn't actually thought about isolating it as its own episode, but Andy brought up some good points and I'd like to clarify a few things about the way I think. But as I said to Andy online, and I would say to you as well, I love interaction. I love pushback. I love questions because it helps me see, am I being clear? Do you understand what it is that I'm saying? And as Nate messaged me a couple of days ago, it was clarifying for him for something that he actually has the privilege of using in his own church in Portland. And so I'm really thankful for listeners who found the podcast and for those who recommend it to other people. I hope that you um, are challenged by what you are hearing on the podcast. I'm going to have a little fun with this one. And um, as usual, we'll start with the passage itself from the Gospel of John. And then I just want to walk us through the passage and see if we can look at it maybe with fresh eyes thinking about what may actually be going on in the passage. And what you might find is a little bit of surprise at how many assumptions we simply place onto this passage when we read it. And I just want to point those assumptions out and then offer to you an alternative way of reading this passage, which I personally think fits the context much better. You'll have to make that decision for yourself. But ultimately, that's what this podcast is for, right? It's for me to present how I understand the truth and how I think it impacts our lives and shapes the way we think about God and his kingdom. And then, of course, you're going to have to decide that for yourself. And if you're in a position where you're ready to think that way, or if you never arrive at a position like that because I'm wrong, well, then that's okay, too. We're trying to do this together. And so I'm thankful for you listeners. I'm excited for this episode So let's just get right into it. Prepare a place for you. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read the passage from John 14, where the title for this episode comes from, the prepare a place for you. And what I'm going to do is actually read several verses from chapter 13 so that we can get some of the immediate context and then transition right in to the opening verses of chapter 14. And just as a side note, this is often a good practice to learn to implement as you are reading the Bible. And that is not to ignore chapter breaks or verse breaks, but simply to recognize that those were not a part of the original writing of these books. And so when John is writing his gospel, he's not thinking, okay, take a big break now between chapter 13 and chapter 14, we're on to something new, but rather he's just writing a narrative. And so when we see these breaks, we oftentimes think, ah, new chapter, you know, kind of a new plot line is going to form. And then, you know, maybe at some point in the future, those plot lines will intersect. That's not what's happening here. But rather, if we read verses or chapter 13 right into chapter 14, it will make a lot more sense. And so that's what I want to do for you here. I'm going to start in verse 31 of chapter 13, and then I'll go right into chapter 14, and we'll skip a few verses um, after chapter verse 10, and then we'll, we'll pick it up again in verse 18. So here is what we read. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, I know that was a lot to take in, and I'm glad that you are tracking with me. If you happen to pick up a Bible and follow along, maybe you recognize some things there, or you might have heard some things repeated. But what I want to do is I kind of want to dive into the beginning part of chapter 14, because as we talk about the theme of heaven, this is generally where the conversation surfaces. In fact, Many um, funeral services will read the passage from John 14, 1 to 6, um, no doubt in the minds of some, at least, believing that their now deceased loved one is in heaven, and that is why this passage has been chosen to be read during the funeral. And um, I would like to um, talk a little bit about that as we go and hopefully gain some clarification as we go. But what I want to do is I want to start by helping you make the connection, right, between verse 1 in chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled, and the fact that what Jesus just told his disciples was not that Peter was going to lay down his life for Jesus, but rather that Peter would deny Jesus three times. And so what you have is Jesus's words of comfort and encouragement to his disciples in the face of the fact that Jesus knows full well they're not going to be faithful to him. Um, in fact, that's a large portion of, of what I want to talk about that, that, that today on the podcast is as I compared the um, directional uh, trajectory between the Tower of Babel, and that is man trying to get to God, what the gospel brings to us is the fact that God has come to man. And so what Jesus is ultimately going to do for us is he's going to bring something to us that we can't bring to ourselves, and it's ultimately because we're not going to be able to do for um, ourselves what we need to. And so Jesus says in verse two, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Now I'm 45 years old and I can remember, have some memories of my single digit years. And one of those memories, believe it or not, is um, in the, the church that my family attended and we were in a large fellowship hall of sorts. And I can't remember if the pastor just made a reference to this verse or if I was in a Bible study with my dad. I can't 
fully remember, but I do have images of the room we were in kind of occupying my imagination as I thought about in my father's house are many rooms. And as a kid, I remember thinking to myself as I looked around this large fellowship hall area, I I thought to myself, wow, yeah, so there's a lot of space. Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. So what I thought that meant was that Jesus was going to go up to heaven. And the reason why he hasn't come back for us yet was because Jesus's idea of preparing a place for us is somewhat similar to the way we as church members would prepare the fellowship hall for an evening meal or for some type of fellowship activity. And what that entailed was grabbing all of the folding chairs along the side of the room and setting them up, whether we set them up in little semicircles or whether we set them up around tables, whatever it happened to be, there were lots of folding chairs that needed to be set up. And for Jesus to set say, I'm going to prepare a place for you, meant that to me, Jesus was up in heaven setting up a million billion folding chairs. And I mean, my goodness, it takes a long time to set up enough chairs for everybody to make it up to heaven. And so I remember as a kid justifying, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet because man, that's a long, that's a lot of chairs to have to set up in heaven. And of course, heaven in my little eight-year-old imagination was like a room with, you know, tiled floors. And it was a place where we were all going to sit down and we were going to worship Jesus in heaven, right? Well, several years later, I remember focusing in a bit more on the fact that Jesus said, you know, in my father's house are many rooms. And I thought, oh, well, there are multiple rooms. It's not just one giant fellowship hall room. And so, okay, maybe, maybe heaven is a little bit more like a massive hotel, right? They're just... You got check-in keys, you know, you can get into your own special room. And I know some translations of the Bible refer to, in my father's house are many mansions, and there are some lines of thought who actually believe that what Jesus is teaching here is that if you were extra faithful to him on the earth, you're going to get some special mansion that's going to be huge and and monumental, and it's a, a really sad interpretation. Um, I know it, it, it works for the, the wealthy and the elite in our world, but that's sadly not at all what Jesus is talking about. But if you were also roughly my age, um, who I grew up, my teenage years were in the 90s, um, I did listen to Christian music. And I know that won't resonate with some of you. If you're like my wife, who never heard any Christian music until we got married, she listen to much cooler music than that. But I I listened to Christian music and one of the bands I listened to that was popular in the 90s was called Audio Adrenaline. And they had a song on one of their albums called Big House. And I know if, depending on who my audience is, you may have never heard of this song, but the chorus, um, well, the the word big house, it, it came from this house passage, you know, in my father's house are many rooms. It came from this passage in John 14 and the chorus, I will not sing it for you, but I will quote it for you. It, you know, it says, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. There's a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father's house. And the Audio Adrenaline song, while being upbeat and catchy and you kind of hummed it on your own time, it basically took what these artists, who were probably guys in their 20s, who decided some of the best things that life has to offer around here are things like eating good food and playing football or watching football. I'm not sure what it is. And so in somewhat of a comical way, they simply transposed those ideas onto their idea of heaven and onto their idea of what God is going to prepare, right, for those who love him. But in each of these scenarios, right, the the audio adrenaline song, my, um, you know, eight-year-old imagination, my early teens imagination, some of the ways that people today speak about this. I'm not really sure where this came from, but it is amazing to me, myself included, so I'm not critiquing anyone here any more than myself, but how effortlessly we simply apply Jesus's teaching here to heaven. Heaven then becomes the goal 
And Jesus simply functions as the means by which we get to heaven. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Jesus uses a phrase, my father's house. And there are actually two other instances in the gospels where Jesus uses this exact same phrase. And I think as well as what I shared with you at the beginning, and that is that if we ignore the chapter breaks long enough to make sure we get the context, that's a really helpful clue in biblical interpretation. Another helpful clue is to read other places in the Bible where someone or even the same person is using a similar phrase and to find out what does that phrase mean in that other context. We can allow the Bible to help us interpret the Bible. That's also a good way of doing Bible study. And in Luke chapter 2, if you remember the story, Jesus is a boy and he goes to Jerusalem with his parents and his parents and all of their family members and their large caravan leave the city and they leave Jesus. Um, that is uh, disheartening for any parent. I cannot even imagine. Jesus doesn't seem to be too faced by it, although I'm sure most children would be. However, his parents panic. They realize after a day's journey that they left God um, back you know, in Jerusalem, and they, they panic, right? And, and we read in Luke chapter 2, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this passage in Luke tells us straight out that after three days, his parents found Jesus in the temple. And here's Jesus now having a conversation with his parents in the temple saying, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So in Luke chapter two, when Jesus uses the phrase, my father's house, he's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the temple. Or here's a passage from the gospel we're looking at now. Here's a passage from John chapter two. Many of you know this story as well. Making a whip of cords, he drove all the money changers out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, again, Jesus is in the temple. He sees the chaos and the activity going on in the temple. He drives out the money changers. He drives out the animals. And he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So twice in the gospels, in two other instances, when Jesus uses the phrase, my father's house, he is speaking about the temple he is not speaking about heaven. Now, I know this gets tricky for us when we try to wrap our minds around it, particularly because of the passage that I read for us at the end of chapter 13. When Jesus says, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says to Peter a few verses later, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now, for a long time, I just assumed that he meant to Peter, well, you can't go to heaven with me now, right? Like only Jesus ascends to heaven in Acts chapter one, but Peter will eventually die, right? And then he too will go to heaven or the rapture will happen, right? As some people believe and think then that Peter will go to heaven later. But Jesus, of course, is the one to go to heaven first and then Peter will follow, and what I always assumed this meant was when Jesus says twice, where I am going, you cannot come. I naturally assumed, as possibly so have you, that the word cannot simply means you're not allowed, right? Um, generally speaking, when we talk with one another and somebody says the word, no, you cannot, 
that that oftentimes means like you're not allowed to do that. Uh, you don't have access to that. You don't have the privilege. You don't have the right to do that, whatever. However, that's not the only use of the word cannot. The word cannot can also mean you are not able. So Moses was not able to go into the promised land. He was not allowed to go into the promised land. And the reason why he wasn't allowed was because the way Moses portrayed the Lord when he struck the rock to demand water to be poured out of that rock, Moses is not faithfully representing the Lord to the people, which means that he is not able to be the Lord's representative for the people in the land. You could say Moses is being punished and God will not allow him, right? He cannot go into the promised land. God won't allow it. Or you could understand that passage in the Old Testament to mean that Moses is not able to accurately represent the Lord to the people. However you interpret that passage could shine some light on the way you choose to interpret this one. However, here we're given even stronger indication that when Jesus says, you cannot follow me, Peter, he doesn't mean you're not allowed. He means you are not able because in the very next verse, Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. In other words, what Peter says is, what do you mean I'm not able, right? Assuming that's what Jesus means. I'll prove to you that I'm able. I'll prove to you that I'm capable. I will lay down my life for you. How much more capability do you need, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter, the reality is you're not able to bring about what it is that needs to happen here. Your dedication for me your love and your loyalty and your faithfulness to me is not what is going to unite heaven and earth. My love and my faithfulness and my loyalty to you is what is going to unite heaven and earth. Don't you remember when I taught you from the good shepherd in John chapter 10? The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. It is God who comes to the earth as the interaction I had several weeks ago on Facebook, we, we talked a little bit on, on there about Jacob's ladder. What do you do about that scene? Isn't that an indication of, you know, of, of earth and heaven connecting and Jacob going up the ladder? The reality is, though, Jacob never ascends that ladder. The angels of God who come from the heavens are the ones who go down and come back up on that same ladder. It's a heaven to the earth trajectory. Or it was also brought up, well, what about Moses on Mount Sinai? Well, that's great. But Moses ascended that mountain, but he never ascended into heaven. Rather, his time spent with the Lord on the top of the mountain was God coming to meet Moses there on the top of the mountain. And so what's happening in the gospel of John, what Jesus is teaching here is that he's come to prepare a place for us. We naturally think of this place, right, as I've shared before, that the temple is the place. And the reason why the temple is so unique and is so special is because it is the place where the heavens meet the earth. But when people go to the temple, they are not then ascending to the heavens. Rather, the temple has always been the place where God has descended to be with us. And so what does Jesus say? He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, this is interesting again. And once again, it's an assumption that is often made that when Jesus says, then I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, so that where I will be, there you may be also. 
or so that where I will be at that time, you may be also. Jesus says that where I am, you may be also. He says it in the present tense. And so a good question for you to ask, which is a question I've posed before, but I would invite you to ask it with me is, where is Jesus while he's speaking about these things? Now you say, well, he's with his disciples or he's in Israel or whatever. And you could say that, but Jesus actually gives us the answer to that question. When he says that where I am, you may be also, Jesus says in verse 10, immediately after telling Philip, hey, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Jesus says, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? Now, here's what's really, really important to grasp. Jesus says that where I am, you may be also. And where is Jesus? He is in the Father. So what Jesus is saying is, I am going to prepare a place for you so that you may be in the Father in the same way that I am in the Father. Now, in order for this to happen, in order for Jesus to be able to share with us his reality as it is experienced in the heavens with us on the earth, he's going to have to, as we've already looked at in the podcast, unite the heavens with the earth. He's going to have to bring the two together and remove whatever barriers are in place from the heavens being united to the earth. Jesus is going to have to go somewhere. He's going to have to do something which is going to bring about a reunification of the heavens and the earth. And let me share with you the place that Jesus is going to have to go to do that is not heaven. It's the cross. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and tells Peter that he cannot follow him now, what Jesus is saying is, you cannot follow me to the way of the cross. And this is exactly what we see happen in the gospels. Peter's fear of getting caught up in the arrest of Jesus, which he suspects is going to lead to beating, to to um, crucifixion and to death itself, is the very thing that causes Peter to deny even knowing Jesus three separate times. What then does Jesus say that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going? Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. You see, Jesus' life is a testimony that the presence of God, that the blessings of the heavens have come to the earth. The incarnation of Jesus, what that ultimately will entail, what that ultimately will involve is the blessings of the heavens coming to the earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says to his own disciples, I am the way. If you, have, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, this is verse 8 of John 14, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now this is beautiful because Jesus is now saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, meaning When you look at me, you are seeing the revelation of God himself, whose very nature and character required him to come from the heavens to the earth in order to to reconcile the world to himself. And remember, in the context that Jesus is speaking, he's referring to the temple, And you may not know this, and if you don't, I'm happy to share it with you. But in the temple, there is a curtain that is in the temple, and it was there to separate the holy place from the most holy place. 
And it says in Exodus chapter 26, here referring to the tabernacle, but this gives us the the clearest explanation of this point. When Solomon constructs the temple, we're given just a flyby of some of the same features. So I take that to mean that the temple is a more permanent structure of the tabernacle that was described for us in Exodus. And so let me read for you what Exodus 26, 31 to 34 says. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang on it four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Now, what's really interesting about this is that what Jesus, well, what Jesus is describing, but what Moses is describing with the veil and what the Lord commissioned him to do was to have a giant curtain that was primarily blue. It had some scarlet and a little bit of purple in there, but it was primarily blue with cherubim skillfully sewn into it. Now, cherubim are angelic creatures that dwell in the heavens. And here you have a giant curtain, which is blue in color, akin most likely to the skies, which is where these angelic creatures reside. And this giant curtain celebrate, separates the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was accessible only to the high priest, and only one time per year because it was the center. It was the, you know, the hub of the presence of God with the Ark of the Testimony and the, the, the cherubim and the wings that, that he would sit on on the mercy seat of the Ark, right? The holy, the most holy place represented the heartbeat of the throne of God where the, the heavens itself resided and where God's presence dwelt. It was then separated by a giant curtain made of blue with angels in it made to look like the skies. And then you had the holy place where the priests would do their activity of service in the temple. The lampstand was there, the bread, the, the showbread, the table of showbread, that, that sort of thing. And we've talked about the role of priests in the tabernacle um, several other times on the podcast. But if you just imagine that image, what that image is in the temple is literally a place where the heavens meet the earth. It is a place where the whole, most holy place is separated by these blue skies from the dwelling place where the priests do their sacrificial work. And so what we know of when Jesus speaks about my father's house, he's speaking about a temple. And what's real interesting to me is that in Mar Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus goes to the cross, Peter has already denied him three times. He's run away in shame, just crushed over the reality of what he wasn't capable of doing on behalf of Jesus. And in Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, we read this. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, we've heard this phrase before. We've heard the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And as I read this from Exodus, we know now that this curtain in the temple was representative of the skies. It was representative of the heavens. It was representative of the separational barrier between where God dwells in, i.e. the most holy place and where man can dwell and do his priestly work. And that is the holy place. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, we read, when Jesus came up out of the water at his baptism, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we have the heavens being torn open and the spirit coming down and resting on Jesus. And in Matthew 27, at the end of the gospels, we have the curtain of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? 
I'm bringing all of it up because for Matthew to tell us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom meant that this barrier that separated the heavens from the earth has now been removed. That the death of Jesus on the cross has made access to the heavens available to everyone. But notice what else Matthew says. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, from the heavens to the earth. This was an act of God, something that only God could do, something that God chose to do. Through his own suffering and death, God himself, Jesus Christ, has removed the barrier between the heavens and the earth. This is precisely why Paul exhorts the Ephesian Christians, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, to recognize that Jesus, quote, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Christ, the dividing wall between heaven and earth has been broken down, which is the single greatest dividing wall ever. And so Paul exhorts the Ephesians to live this way in every other area of their lives where dividing walls exist. In his context, between Jews and Gentiles. And to this, we could add other dividing walls. Male and female, slave, free, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, young, old, healthy, unhealthy, muscular, weak, socially acceptable, socially awkward. Wherever dividing walls exist in Christ, they are torn down. So Jesus is here teaching his disciples He is telling them, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then Jesus tells them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will Jesus come to us? He will come to us by his spirit. And what does Paul, what does Jesus go on to say? A little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, this is tremendous, because Jesus is now saying in John 14, 20, exactly what he promised them in verse 3 of John 14, that where I am, you may be also. And where is Jesus? He is in his Father. What does Jesus say? In that day, in the day that I won't leave you as orphans. In the day that I will come to you in the presence of my spirit, in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now that's verse 23 of John chapter 14. In verse two of John 14, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. Again, a poor translation of rooms is mansions, right? Jesus is not talking about houses. What he is talking about are dwelling places. In my father's house are many places for you to dwell. Well, guess what? The word in Greek that we translate rooms, which just means dwelling places, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's in the same chapter in verse 23, it says, if Jesus saying, if anyone loves me, I will, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That word translated home 
is the dwelling place that God will take up residence in his people. Now, I want you to just think about this in terms of what we've just been talking about. Many people, Christians included, assume that when Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms, he is talking about heaven and he's talking about taking people from heaven and or from the earth and bringing them up to heaven. And this sadly, over the course of time, begins to take on a life of its own such that many Christians begin to think of the earth as a place from which we are going to escape. This, this ultimately is where some of the rapture teaching comes from. This sadly is a lot of where environmental um, um, uh, people being kind of opposed to environmental procedures in this world because Christians have bought into this idea that the world is a place we are going to leave and then go up to someplace better. That is not what the Bible teaches. Jesus is here saying not that we are going to go to heaven to have a special dwelling place prepared for us, but rather we become the dwelling place by which Jesus and his father take up residence in us. Now, this is much more than just a theological proposition. The New Testament is filled with language describing the church, and that means the people, as being the temple of God. I read for you several verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read the rest of that paragraph for you because it's stunning in what it presents to us. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Sorry, I had to find my place there. He says, Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In verse 19, then, he says this, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is how Jesus says that he will leave and yet he will come to us. In verse 18 of John 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Right. So here's Jesus. Let's think of the the, the, the flow of this passage. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Philip says, how can we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. But then what does Jesus say? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what happens after Jesus's ascension, his spirit comes, but his spirit comes as a result of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Sometimes we speak about heaven as if there's nothing else for Jesus to do but to be our ticket to heaven. That's not true. Jesus is the centerpiece. Jesus isn't on the periphery simply giving us access to the great heavenly place where we can have big tables with lots of food and where we can play football in the backyard. Jesus is here to reunite heaven and earth, and he's doing that on our behalf. Why? Because we are incapable of doing it for ourselves. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing the most... Um, courageous disciple of Jesus can do to unite the heavens with the earth. In fact, when Peter boldly declares that he will do just that, Jesus says, no, actually, you're not going to lay your life down for me. You're actually going to uh, deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter will have to come face to face with his own weakness his own inability to bring about what he had so hoped and and believed he could bring about in order for Jesus to be the true good shepherd who truly does lay his life down for the sheep, who truly does prepare a place for us by going to the cross 
to abolish the dividing wall that separates the heavens from the earth and then commissions us as his believers, as his followers, to be among those who continually look for dividing walls to knock down so that we can constantly be his representatives on the earth. One last passage I want to bring to your attention, which I think is just beautiful, and it highlights once again what Jesus was doing on the cross. Jesus is the manifestation of the Father in the flesh. This is why he can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And where am I? I am in the Father. And where's the Father? The Father's in me. And where am I? I'm here with you. You're looking at me which is you looking at the Father having come down to you. Why? Because you can't ascend to him. He comes down to us. This is the hope of the gospel. He brings the blessings of the heavens down to the earth. And God demonstrated when he came as Jesus, he demonstrated for the entire world who it is that takes the initiative when it comes to reuniting man with God. It's God. It's not us. We love because he first loved us. The initiative always begins with God. The kingdom of God is here, Jesus says. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God comes and it comes in blessing and it comes in kindness and it comes in compassion and it comes in grace and it comes in love. And when it does and you see it, you repent and you believe in it. That's the way it works. God comes down in Jesus And here's the passage I want to end with, and that is 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Jesus, on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we're told God was in Christ, on the cross, reconciling the world to himself, when Jesus died, the temple in the or the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, rendering now access for the earth to meet with the heavens and the heavens to meet with the earth. The author of Hebrews tells us that we now have access to the throne of grace to approach the Father, to ask him boldly for the things that we need so that we might find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. The book of Revelation speaks of the open door that John has set that Jesus rather has set before the Christians that John sees when he walks through this open door and has access to all of the blessings of the kingdom. Sees the presence of God on the throne, sees the lamb with the God on the throne and recognizes that we have access to this God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus going to prepare a place for us is ultimately creating in us the opportunity for his spirit to come and to fill us with the presence of God so that God and Jesus might dwell with us. The place where God dwells is in the person of Jesus. And the place where Jesus dwells is in his people by his spirit. This is what's being promised in the gospels. This does not mean that there is not blessing for God's people at the end of all things. I am not erasing the idea of heaven. What I'm trying to get us to understand is not that we are looking for an escape from this place, but rather the end of the Bible describes a new heavens and a new earth. It's renewed. It's created anew. It's made new in the same way that you and I are called new creations. So don't misunderstand the idea that something is going to be completely obliterated and burned up. That's no more true than the life that you were as a human being is, is, was completely obliterated before you knew Christ and now you are something entirely different. Well, you are a new creation. But your flesh and blood is the same. You weren't destroyed. You weren't burned up. You weren't eradicated or annihilated. You're still here. You're just being made new. And that's ultimately what's going to happen with this world. But the point of it isn't that we would escape this broken, fallen place. The point, rather, is that God and his blessing and his presence would come to us and would remake this fallen world into something new and pure and worth living in. 
But the humbling reality of it, as far as I'm concerned, is that God is willing to say, the place that I want to be, the place where I feel at home, the place where I really like to be is in and among my people. Which is why Jesus will say, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Like Jesus literally takes up residence within his people because that's where he wants to be. That's his happy place, if you will. And you all have happy places, right? On a cold winter day like it is here, even in North Carolina, some people's happy place is with pajama pants on the couch under a blanket watching a movie or sipping a cup of hot coffee or sitting on their their couch or on their back porch in the springtime with a glass of wine. Like we all have places that are unique to us, that mean something to us. What's fascinating is that God has places like that too. And for him, where he feels most at home, where he wants to be, is residing in and among his people by his spirit. If that doesn't humble us, if that doesn't draw us into worship, I'm not really sure what would. But Jesus is speaking about preparing a place, and that place is precisely where his father takes up residence in us. That's, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. I am pretty sure that this will generate some questions, and I sure hope that it does, or at least some comments or some helpful thoughts from you, and I'd love to hear from you. So go up, pick up your Bible this week. Go read back through these passages. See if what I've said makes sense. See if you resonate with it at all. See if there are other passages that you think we could have brought into this discussion to make it make more sense. Or, hey, here's a passage that I think contradicts what you're saying. How would you understand this passage? That's what this is all about. We're trying to learn and grow together and trying to understand Jesus on his own terms, which I know none of us do perfectly. I certainly don't, but I'm trying right along with the rest of you. And so I am thankful for the the, uh, the feedback and the um, input that I get from each of you as you listen week in and week out. So I am thankful for you. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will talk to you next time. Have a great week.